Well, good morning again, everybody. You glad to be here today? Yes, sir. Hey, well, we're glad that you are here, whether you're in the room or watching online. Thanks so much for hanging out with us wherever you may find yourself today. In fact, those of us in the room, can we give it up for all of our friends watching online this morning and let them know that we love them? And if you are a little bit newer to Ethos, maybe this is your very first time ever, we especially want to say thank you for coming and, and hanging out with us today. The reason being is we know that it can be kind of awkward, maybe even intimidating to come into a new environment, especially church. How many know like church is oftentimes the most intimidating of spaces to walk into for the very first time? And so thanks for having the courage just to, to be here today. And, uh, and if we can do anything for you in any way, if we can serve in any way, whether it's your first time, you've been coming here for a long time, let us know. It really is our heart. We want to help make a difference. In fact, in a few weeks, November 21st, we've actually changed the date. Uh, we're going to be having our our, our annual Legacy Weekend. This is our one weekend a year, one Sunday a year, where we receive an offering, and 100% of everything that comes in, we give back away to local organizations that we vetted and whose mission and vision we really believe in. And you'll hear a little bit more about that specifically next weekend. But if you've been a part of Ethos for any length of time, you, you probably heard of this at this point. This is our fourth year doing this now. And we just, we love to get behind some organizations because how many know this? That God can give a vision to an organization, to, to a people, but really generosity does actually determine the speed of that, of that vision. And leading into our Legacy Weekend as a leadership team, we just really felt impressed that God was telling us as a church to go above and beyond that even before we received that offering that we were supposed to give away what was for us like a radical amount of money in and I mentioned that because we've chosen five organizations. We identified three of them over the last three weeks. But there's five organizations that we wanted to give $10,000 to. Just to say, hey, we believe in you. We see you. We see the work that you're doing for the cause of Jesus Christ. And we just want to say thank you. And so this weekend, actually, we have a really great organization here with us. They've got a table out in the foyer who we've partnered with in the past. And so you've heard their name around here before. But it's the Bear Foundation. And they, they offer some really significant opportunities for children to experience life-giving, healthy homes. They're a foster care organization that is explicitly all about Jesus, and so they not only make a difference in the lives of kids, but they make a significant difference in the lives of adults as well. And we've got several families in the church who foster children, and so you know firsthand the difference an organization like the Bear Foundation makes. And so what I'm asking of us this weekend is just simple. They've got a table out there, and they've got a bunch of information. Just swing by, ask them any questions, that you have, but even more so, just say thank you. Like, thank them for the service that they're providing to our city, because it really is making a difference. It's a significant impact, and we love and believe in them, and on behalf of just the, the generosity of Ethos Church, we wanted to give them $10,000 this weekend, let them know. And they didn't even know we were doing that either, which I didn't, I didn't realize that they weren't aware, and Vinny told me this morning, they don't even know why they're here this weekend, and so they were really blown away by that. And so, Vinny, can you just open the door really quick so they can hear us? Can we give it up for the Bear Foundation who was with us this weekend? We love you, Bear Foundation. We believe in you all. Not only the work that they're doing is significant, but the people, the people who are behind that table, they're awesome. Like they just have big hearts, just generous people. And so you're going to love just even saying hello to them. So swing by and, and let them know how much we appreciate them being here and even more so just the work that they're continuing to do. But we're in week three. Week three of our series, uh, The Emotionally Healthy Church. And in week one, just two weeks ago, we, we spoke from a message entitled Permission to Feel Pain, where we identify that a lot of times for, for some of us, if you grew up in church, if you grew up in Christianity, and maybe even if you didn't, you, you kind of had this, 
this impression that you're not supposed to share your feelings. And as a result, we, we generally speaking kind of brush under the, the proverbial rug of our life all of the emotions that we feel, or at least the bad emotions, right? Like the good ones we savor, we want to hit the pause button on, but the bad ones, we're like, I don't know what to do with this emotion. And so we just tend to ultimately ignore it. And you know as well as I do, and we talked about this in week one, that becomes really emotionally unhealthy. And furthermore, Jesus did not teach us that. He, he, our Lord, our Savior, experienced the full bandwidth of emotions, the good and the bad, and he taught us what to do with them. He taught us how to process those emotions healthily. And so you can go back to week one to listen more to what we taught on from that subject of permission to feel pain. And then last weekend, Kayla Steckline was with us. And how many of you were able to be here or watch or listen online at a later date and listen to Kayla? She did an amazing job, and hopefully it was eye-opening. Uh, you learned a lot. You were encouraged, challenged by it as well. I know that, I, know that I, was. I was. talking to, I was talking to a friend this morning. He was just sharing with me some of what he learned last weekend as it relates to how we can help people in season of mental illness and depression and, and pain in that way. And, and so hopefully you're able to, able to learn something from that as well. It was really fantastic for me. But this, this weekend, I want to I share from a message entitled, Working It Out and Letting God In. Everybody say, working it out, working it out. and letting God in. And letting God in. And, and, and this, this particular series, Mostly Healthy Church, it was, a, it was one I had so many notes for. And I only had four weeks, four weeks to kind of share what I was studying because Kayla was with us last weekend. Tammy Smith is going to be with us in, in two weeks. And Tammy and her husband, Mike Smith, they pastor Vista Church just a couple miles down the road here in Worthington, another campus in, in Dublin. And they are awesome. And Tammy is brilliant. Uh, she's a licensed therapist and counselor, and I can't wait to introduce her to you. Tammy has more letters after her name than I have letters in my first, middle, and last name combined. You know what I'm saying? Like she just, she's super smart, so you're going to love hearing from Tammy in a few weeks, but I only had four weeks, and, and this was one of those weeks that, that, that was just kind of hard for me to kind of narrow it down, but I really believe in what we're speaking on this morning, and, I, and I've been praying all week that it's not just another message, that we don't just treat this like another TED Talk. I'm going to go ahead and kind of squeeze some cables together and just see if that, see if that helps, but I, I pray that we don't treat this like just another, like a TED Talk, which is oftentimes what we can do in church. We can kind of come and we go and we're like, oh yeah, that was good. But, but we kind of forget, like, but how, like what's God want to do in my life as a result of what I just heard? Today's one of, one of those days where I really believe he wants to, he kind of wants us to kind of wrestle with, and I use that word intentionally, wrestle with, like, God, what are you doing within me? And I, I want to allow you to do that. That's why I, even during that time of worship a moment ago, I was saying, just, let's just pray. Holy Spirit, come. And I want, to, I want us to pray one more time this morning before we lean in together. God, thank you again for these moments that we have to gather together and to, to hear from you. And that's what we ask today, God. Would you speak to us? Would you make up the distance between what I prepared to say and what you want to speak into the hearts and the lives of every single person here and all of those that we represent, God? Our children, our parents, our friends, everybody that we interact with on a, on a regular basis. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Go Bucks. Um, I don't know about you, but I, but I grew up in a home where um, there was like some spoken and some unspoken values. But one of those spoken values in my home was very clear. Like my dad taught us from a young age. I'm one of six kids. And he taught us, all six of us, never say never and never give up. Never say never, son. 
and never give up. In fact, one of the ways that he taught us this wasn't just by us like repeating that or knowing that, but, but he would actually pin us kids down on the ground. He'd put both of our hands over our head like only a dad can do, hold them with one hand, and then he would, then he would tickle us. And he would tickle us where we would be laughing so hard that at first it was fun, but he ever been tickled for so long and so hard that eventually it's painful? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about, Ben? Like, it's not, it's no longer fun. Like, you're laughing hysterically, but you, you're like, you're ready to throw some bows, you know? And that's, that's the degree to which my dad would tickle us. In fact, it was, it was, it was torture. Like, it was childhood trauma. Like, to this day, I'm traumatized by my dad tickling us. But in fact, true story, kind of side note, I always promised my dad when I was a kid, when when I get old enough and strong enough, I'm going to reverse this pain on you. And kind of a weird thing I did. But anyway, that's awkward, really weird to share in church, but it's the truth. And so, but, but he would always tickle us and he would say, don't give up, don't give up. And then he would say, do you give up? And if, if we'd give up, he'd stop. And he'd be like, why'd you give up? Like, what are you doing? Like, this is reverse psychology. And he's like, let's try again. And he started tickling us again. Do you give up? And we're like, no, no. And like a minute later, do you give up? Do you get up? And we're like, yes. Why'd you give up? Isn't it obvious, dad? Like, I gave up because it hurts. Like, this is calling child services, you know. My dad was trying to drill something in us. Hey, don't give up. Like, like we've got to learn not to, not to give up. And the reality is that none of us, not a single person in this room, would ever like to admit that we're a quitter. But the truth is, especially those of us who have a little bit, a little bit more experience under our belt, look back at certain things in our lives and think, I wish I wouldn't have quit there. I wish I wouldn't have given up on that. I wish I'd have been more patient. I wish I'd have had more endurance. I wish I would have persevered. Which again, side note, I think perseverance and endurance, those are two characteristics of a mature follower of Jesus that we don't talk much about because they're not real like, you know, fun to talk about. But the reality is there's a, there's a real truth to understanding what it looks like to persevere and endure through seasons that Jesus is leading us into that are ultimately intended to bring about growth in our lives. But for all of us though, for all of us, for, and a lot of times even for really good reasons. Maybe unique to you in your situation. We, we find ourselves giving up on things that later on we look back and think, I wish I would have stuck it out a little bit longer. In fact, both in Christians and non-Christians alike, I've, I've noticed that there's kind of this, this perpetual cycle that each of us experiences. That the cycle begins with excitement. Whenever we start something new, we usually start it, why? Because we're really excited about it. It's a new job, New relationship, new career path. It's a New Year's resolution. Come on, you start a New Year's resolution coming up here, not too long. We start them, why? Because we're really excited about the potential, the potential growth that that resolution could bring about in our life. A new church, a lot of times we'll, we'll, we'll go to a new church. Why? Because we're excited about we're excited about something that that church or that, that group of people, that small group has to offer us. But whether it's a week later, a month later, a few years later, we find ourselves in the second stage, and all of us will find ourselves in this stage. It's a stage of disillusionment. It's a stage where we realize the thing we were excited about doesn't live up to the potential that we had hoped that it would live up to. We realize that the people at that church are just as imperfect as I am, 
And therefore, I become a bit disillusioned. We realize that that goal, that New Year's resolution takes a lot more work than we thought it was going to take. It takes a lot more effort than we hoped that it would take. And as a result, we become a bit disillusioned. And after we experience that disillusionment, we kind of have two options. Are you following me? The, the option that a lot of us choose, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't claim to be a perfect church, but come on, we've got to be an honest church, is we, we choose to give up. And we try something new again, something that maybe we're, ex- we're more excited about, maybe we're equally as excited about this new thing as we were about the old thing at one point in our life, but... But inevitably, we're going to experience a season of disillusionment in that new thing, just as we did in the old thing. Now, we have an option, though, too. Option B is to, is to choose to make some adjustments, is to recognize that if we adjust some of those things in our lives, and you know what they are for you better than I do, but if we adjust them, then we have the opportunity to experience the growth that we were hoping to experience when we first became excited about that new thing to begin with. But a lot of us, though, we just find ourselves in this perpetual cycle of excitement and disillusionment over and over and over again. And, and in the church, as, as, as Christians, we, we read our Bibles, we, we pray, we, we maybe we even practice generosity, we come to church, we're involved in a small group, we worship and we lift up our hands and we surrender to Jesus in these, these moments of emotion in one sense, but we're serious and sincere about it at the same time. Maybe we even fast. Come on, like you know, like you're, when you're, you're giving up food, you're like, I'm serious about this, God. I want to see change in my life. And yet, and yet we still find ourselves doing the, the routine of religiosity, but becoming disillusioned about the results that that routine is bringing into our life and we become disillusioned and we just keep going over and over. Why is that? What is the adjustment that we need to make in order to experience the growth? That's what this series is about. It's about emotional health. I think the adjustment that we need to make, I believe wholeheartedly, the adjustment we need to make is we need to learn how to become emotionally mature because in the words of John Maxwell, I don't see anything beautifully different in lost people than saved people. Why is that? The question that I really want us to lean into this morning for just a few quick moments is, is why are so many of us living lives with deeply entrenched parts of us apparently untouched by the power and the mercy of Jesus? And furthermore, let me throw a conjecture in here, a lot of us don't even realize the parts of our life that have been deeply untouched by Jesus because we're living in a false reality. And once again, in the words of Peter Scazzaro, who wrote the book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, fantastic book, by the way. I'm going to keep plugging that for three more weeks. But it is, it is not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Like, it just, it's not, it's not possible. No matter how much we read our Bibles, no matter how much we pray, no matter how much we go to church, our emotional maturity and our spiritual maturity, they are intricately tied together. And I think Paul begins to begins to recognize this a bit as he, as he writes his letter to the church of Philippi. This is the apostle, the apostle Paul speaking here who, who's responsible for writing about 60% of the newer portion of the Bible called the New Testament. Arguably the second most influential Christian to ever walk the face of the earth with the exception of Jesus himself. And he says in Philippians 2 verse, verse 12, he says, therefore, dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to, check this out, Work out your salvation. Everybody say work out. work out. 
He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This phrase, with fear and trembling, means with a reverence and an awe for who God is. In other words, Paul is saying, I want you to work out your salvation realizing that God is awesome. I want you to keep your attention on Jesus and I want you to keep your attention on his spirit. I want you to keep your attention on, the heavenly, on your heavenly father, knowing that he's incredibly better than you ever dreamed or thought possible for him to be. And Paul goes on in verse 13. He says, for God is at work within you. Everybody say within. Everybody say within. within. There we go. Yeah. Second service. Y- y'all know how to bring some energy. That's right. And he says, God's at work within you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, God's doing something in you, doing something in us. What's the purpose? Well, it's for his will, to bring about his good pleasure. Now, backtrack for just a moment. Paul begins by saying, he says, I I want you to work out your salvation. We gotta notice, first and foremost, what Paul is not saying. He's not saying, I want you to work for your salvation. He said, I want you to work from your salvation. In fact, we know that you can't work for your salvation. You can't earn your salvation. Salvation, being made right with God, that's what salvation is, is a free gift that God extends to you through the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul himself in Romans chapter 3 says that all men, all women, all of humanity fall short of the standard of God. That none of us live up to the standard that God wants us to live up to. But he goes on in verse 24 of Romans 3, and he says, but you've been justified by grace through the redemption of Jesus Christ. In other words, grace has been given to us, and it's by grace through faith that we are saved, that we receive salvation. You know what grace is? It's God's unmerited favor towards you. It's God saying, here's a free gift that you can have that you could never work for or earn on your own, which how many of you know that's good news? Because if we had to earn something from God, we would all fail. None of us would be able to live up to the standard of God. And God knew that. And so he's like, hey, hey, I got something really good for you. His name is Jesus. Believe in him. And as a result, you are made right. You're forgiven of your sins. You no longer have to carry around the baggage of your shame, the guilt from your past, or the guilt that maybe you'll experience in the future. You've been made right with me. And so Paul is telling us in Philippians 2, he's not saying, hey, work for your salvation. No, no, he's saying, you have a position of salvation. One scholar by the name of Warren Wearsby, he's my favorite New Testament scholar. Probably shouldn't have a favorite, but I just, he's like my go-to guy. And and, and he says it like this, that you have a position of being sanctified, which basically means it's a churchy word that, that, that describes that we have been made right with God. However, we progressively work out the salvation that's within us so that we can begin to kind of see the fruit of that on the outside of us. We don't work for, we work from. And Paul says, we work from a place of salvation because God is working something in us. And I want to see that come out of you. I want to see what God is doing in you. I want to see that begin to manifest on the outside of you. And so how do do we do that, though? Like, what does it look like to work that out? Well, that that phrase, work out, it actually comes from the Greek word katergestai. No idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly, by the way. So you're like, oh, this guy knows Greek. I do not. But I do have Google, just as you do, too. And And it literally means bring to completion. 
So Paul's saying, I, I want you to bring your salvation, not to completion in the sense that you can be made right with God. That already happened. Your spirit, the part of you that lives on forever, your body will be buried in the ground someday, but your spirit will live on for eternity. Your spirit has been saved. But Paul's saying, I want you to bring your salvation to completion by progressively recognizing how to work that out into every area of your life. And there's just kind of four quick things. In fact, in fact, kind of three things and one really, really quick, okay? But three things I want us to identify as it relates to how do we work out in order to let God in. The first thing that we gotta do is we gotta learn to pay attention to what's going on inside of you. This takes us all the way back to, to week one. You gotta learn to allow yourself to slow down, to be like, what's, what's really happening in me? Like, what emotions am I, am I feeling? And why am I feeling them? Because one of the most unhealthy things that you can do is to dismiss or diminish how you feel. As a result, we begin to carry around a truckload of emotional baggage. And a lot of times you don't even realize you're carrying it, but it's bleeding on other relationships in your life and impeding on your relationship with God. I love how Tremper Longman says it. This is, this is brilliant. In his book, A Cry of the Soul, Tremper, who, by the way, also has like the coolest first name ever. Like how much would you, like I'd love to have that name. Like what's up, Tremp? That's just the cool name. He says, ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality. And reality is where we meet God. Yeah. Emotions are the language of the soul. I love that. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. However, we often turn a deaf ear through emotional denial, distortion, or disengagement. We strain out anything disturbing in order to gain tenuous control over our inner world. We're false to ourselves and lose a wonderful opportunity to know God. And we forget the change comes through brutal honesty and vulnerability before God. About two months ago, I recognized in my own life that, that man, like something was just like off within me. And, but like so many of us, we just kind of brush it off and don't really pay much attention to it. And we just kind of go on with our day, our week, our month, our year. And, and Courtney, my wife, in like the most... Courtney and wife kind of way was like, babe, something's off with you. You know what I mean? Like, thank God for wives that help us in this area. And, and of course, though, as classic husband, I kind of just ignored her. And I was like, hey, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. She's like, no, babe, something's off with you. You need to figure it out. You need to take some time and identify, like, what's really going on within you? And so I just kind of, for about the next week, I was like, man, what, what is it that's off? Because I recognize that, that, like most men, when I start to kind of feel sad, it masquerades in my life as mad. Come on, anybody else with me? Am I by myself in here? Like one other, two other? Okay, great. We're, I'm not totally alone. And I, and I realized like, I'm kind of becoming a bit temperamental. And, and what I recognized is that I had never actually given myself space and time to grieve some of the disappointment that I experienced over the last 20 months throughout the COVID season. And I had, really, really, I had very real disappointments like all of us had. And yet, I didn't allow myself to grieve them because when I looked at the things that I was disappointed about, the things I didn't get to experience or the things I did experience, they seemed to pale in comparison to what some of my friends did or didn't experience and the disappointments in their lives. I had close friends who lost close family members from COVID, close friends who lost their jobs as a result of the 
As a result of the pandemic, close friends who experienced much more isolation as they were single, living alone than what I experienced, I thought, man, like my, my disappointment just isn't worth even grieving in one sense, but as a result of never grieving it, which is actually one of the lies that we all feel. If your disappointment is less than somebody else's disappointment, don't even, you, you shouldn't even, that's not even worth caring about. In fact, we even tell that to each other, don't we? Yeah, but you know what? At least you're not as bad as so-and-so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's still emotionally unhealthy to brush that thing under the rug and to ignore it and to ignore it altogether. And here, here's the reality. Catch this. If you're taking notes, write, write this down right here, that every emotion you experience is a result of something you desire. Every emotion you experience is because you desired something that happened or you desire something that didn't happen, and as a result, you're experiencing that emotion. You gotta dig beneath the surface. Like, like, why did I just lash out right there? Well, the reason you lashed out at that person, your wife, your husband, a friend, a coworker, your employer, your neighbor, is because you, you desired something from them that you didn't experience, or you desired something less from them that you did experience. And, as a result, you are, you are lashing out. Ask yourself, like, why am I actually sad about this? Like, identify it, process it, work through it. Like, why am I frustrated right now? Just this past week, I was in an email exchange with, with a woman who I'd never met before, and she had never met me before either, and I was asked to be a reference for a friend of mine. He's a local pastor, and he was, he was applying for this fellowship program, and so I was waiting to receive this, this email from her, and so she, she sends me this email with this Calendly invite. I don't know if you ever used Calendly before. It's a really great tool, and so I go on her, on her calendar, and I choose a time slot where she can call me for a reference, and she emails me back immediately canceling the invite. It says, choose another time. I thought, well, that's weird. It was showing available on your calendar. I choose another time. Once again, it's canceled. Please choose another time. The third time, I'm kind of frustrated at this point. I choose another time. It's canceled. She says, choose a time between November 6th and November 10th. I say, that time is not showing as available on your Calendly appointment app. She says, I know. Period. Sends back. Like, what do you want me to do? Choose a time between November 6th and November 8th. That's all she says. I'm like, Lady, you are so unorganized, and I'm so frustrated right now. And, and, and so I choose a time, November 8th, 9 a.m. She responds with, can you do tomorrow morning at 9 a.m.? Like, and you know what I said? No, period, send. <laughs> I was just irritated. I looked at my calendar. I could do tomorrow, 9 a.m. About half an hour later, I was like, ugh. Yes, something opened up I can do tomorrow at 9 a.m. And, and I get on the phone with her then in the morning, and, and instantly, she says, hey, Jordan, first off, I want to apologize for how unorganized I've been. I'm like, okay, I receive. I receive that. And she's, she says, I'm a mother of four kids. I work a full-time job running this fellowship program for pastors, and I'm running for city council. And I said, Wow, <laughs> how can I help you, <laughs> you know? Like, and, and I realized, though, I was so frustrated and irritated with her. Why? Because I just wanted her to admit she's unorganized and I'm right. That's, that's all I wanted. And all of my frustration was a result of something that I desired, that I didn't experience. Well, by simply processing that, it, it, it allows me to interact 
And as we'll talk about in the last week of this series, it allows me to actually love people like Jesus loves people. See, too, too many of us are concerned with what's outside of us and not what's going on inside of us. Too many of us are spending too much time cursing the darkness around us rather than shining a light on the darkness within us. We, we, gotta, we gotta take that proverbial flashlight and be like, what's really going Like, what's really going It's not everybody else's fault. Like, what's going on inside of me? Like, what? Like, God, like, help me here. The second thing that we gotta do in order to work out our salvation and become emotionally mature in, in these areas of our lives, we gotta learn to call out the lies of Satan. Satan is a liar. Like Jesus even said in, in John chapter 8, he says that, that Satan is the father of all lies. Like he's, he's the originator of them all. Now, it is increasingly becoming more and more unpopular to talk about the devil or Satan or Lucifer or whatever you want to call him. Like, like I have some pastor friends of mine. We were just talking about this a few, few months ago and how whenever we even mention the name Satan, it feels like we have to give so much context to it because it, immediately people are like, Satan? Well, I believe in God, but not Satan. Well, let me just share this with you for a moment that you can't actually believe in Jesus and not believe in Satan too because Jesus himself talked a lot about him. And he, and he revealed to us, like, hey, Satan's going to lie to you a lot. And so you got to know how he lies, what he's saying to you, so that you can maintain this emotional health and not buy into the lies that you're experiencing as a result of what you sense him saying to you. In fact, Jesus himself modeled for us what it looks like to both be lied to by Satan and how to defeat the lies of Satan. In Matthew chapter 4, just after Jesus is baptized in water by John the Baptist, fully submersed, he comes up out of the water and he He's led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. And in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, we begin to see the first lie that Satan tells Jesus. It's the, it's the lie that I am what I do. That you buy into this lie, that you are what you do. It's a lie of performance. We all experience this. We see this in Matthew 4 where, where the enemy tells Jesus, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now here's what's interesting, just kind of take a time out for a moment, like we can actually take a time out, like I'm not even sure why I said that, I guess it's just like the sport thing in me, but just, just side note for a moment, there is, there, there, you, you got to understand first and foremost that when, when the enemy tries to lie to you, you, you got to realize like, where's that lie coming from? Because up until this point in the life of Jesus, Jesus hasn't done anything significant yet. He has no followers he, he's, he's done no miracles, not even water into wine. He doesn't, he doesn't have any teeth. He's not taught anything yet. He hasn't fed anyone yet. He hasn't healed any paralytics yet. He's got no bestsellers, no podcasts. He's nobody. Like very few people even know his name at the point of this first temptation. And so it's a very real temptation that Jesus is experiencing here. The dead enemy's like, hey, you, wanna, you really want to be something, something great, Jesus? Well, why don't you do something? Show us something. And we buy into that, we buy into that, same, that same lie. Well, what have you achieved? Not very much. You're nobody. Oh, you, that's nothing. You, you haven't done anything significant yet with your life. You're nobody. You're nothing. And we buy into this, or 
the flip side of that same coin is, what have you achieved? Ooh, the enemy will tell you this too. Ooh, boy, you've done a lot with your life. Wow, look at that. You are somebody special, my gosh. Look at all these accomplishments. Woo, you are self-made, aren't you? You're a self-made man. Yes, you are. Cute old man, he's patting you on the back. And as a result, we're like, I am something. I really am somebody. And whether you walk around with insecurity, you walk around with pride, both of them, both of them are a lie. The second lie that the enemy comes and he, he, he tells you that you are what others think of you. It's a lie of popularity. We see this in Matthew chapter 4, verse, verse 5. It says, when the devil took him up to the holy city of Jerusalem, the highest point in the temple, and he said, hey, Jesus, if you're really the son of God, you ought to just jump off. Like, show us. That would be cool. Like this right here, that whew, people are going to like you then. You're going to become a somebody if you just... If you just jump off. See, most of us place a higher premium on what others think about us than what we even realize. There's this deep-rooted, kind of, got to shine a flashlight on it, this deep-rooted fear that we have in disappointing people, or this, this fear of not fitting in. In fact, a lot of us even choose the career that we've chosen because of how it will be perceived by our peers. And so rather than doing what we sense God's telling us to do, we, we do what we think others will think highly of us as a result of what we've done. Can I say this? I didn't say this in first service. Just kind of, maybe there's somebody that needs to hear this, but God, the, the, the enemy will promote you out of your calling. Yeah. He will. He'll give you something that looks, I was just talking to a good friend of mine just this past week. Monday he called me and he was wrestling. He was presented with a promotion at work. It was a significant promotion. And he's like, I don't think I'm supposed to take it. I mean, it was, it was so significant that when he called me, as he was sharing with me, I was like, well, praise God, that's amazing. He's like, no, it's not. He's like, because I'm tempted to take it, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not supposed to do it because I, I think I'm supposed to just stay doing what I'm doing. I was like, well, you are crazy, bro, and have significantly better character than I have because I'd been like, how much more money was that, you know? But come on, like, you gotta, we, we all fall prey to this. Like, we, you you got to understand, you are not what others think of you. You are only what, what God thinks of you. In fact, true freedom comes when we no longer need to be somebody special in other people's eyes because we know we are loved and good enough in God's eyes. Are you, are you catching this, church? The, the third lie that, that the enemy will come and tell you is it's the lie that I am what I have. It's a lie of possessions. We, see, we experience this in our own lives as well. I mean, we, we see this so much in our 21st century Western civilization. In Matthew chapter 4, verse, verse 8, it's kind of the last temptation that Jesus experienced in that wilderness. And it says, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said, he said I'm going to give all of this to you if you just kneel down and worship me. Everything you see, the devil had, he had the ability to give this to Jesus in this moment. Otherwise, it would not have been a real temptation for Jesus. And you just got to bow, you just got to do, just, just worship me. I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it all to you. And we, we buy into the same lie, don't we? It's, it's the lie that we're defined or successful based on what we own or based on what we don't own. In fact, we're coming up against the season right now, like from Black Friday until Christmas Day, marketers in America have spent over $100 billion trying to convince us or seduce us to buy things or seduce our children even more so to buy things that make us feel like I'm somebody. 
And if we don't have it, I'm not, I'm not somebody. And, and, and here's, here's, here's kind of what I want to, sh- here's kind of the concluding point here, right? Right here, here it is, here it is. A lot of times what, we, what we've been taught, and this isn't, this is true, like this, this is, this is good, like this is good teaching, but what we see, okay, well, Jesus defeated the lies of Satan by giving, by giving scripture back to Satan. So Satan would come, and he would lie, and Jesus would find a promise from God's word, and he would reveal it back to Satan. He'd defeat the enemy in that way, and that's true. But I think even more important than that is the foundation that Jesus had when he stepped into the wilderness and began to be tempted. Jesus had a unique foundation that oftentimes we forget. And yes, scripture is important, and yes, the memorization of scripture is important, and yes, we can defeat the lies of the enemy with promises from God, but the great greatest promise you ever experienced from our Father in heaven is found in Matthew chapter 3. It's the same promise that Jesus experienced just hours, not days, not months, not years, just hours before Jesus goes in the wilderness. Mind you, once again, it's the promise from God the Father that Jesus experienced well before Jesus has ever done anything significant. No teachings, no podcasts, no bestsellers, no miracles, no nothing. And God tells Jesus, Hey, Jesus, you're my dearly loved son. Whoo, and you bring me great joy. Uh, but I haven't done anything yet. I know. But I love you so much. But, but, but like, my life really isn't significant yet. I know. But oh my gosh, you bring me so much joy. And it's imperative that you understand that Jesus was told that by his father before he ever did anything? Because God wanted us to know, I loved you, not because of what you've done, but because, whew, you're just my daughter. You're my son. I can't help but love you. I, just, I can't help. But, but like, I feel really insignificant. I know, that's the point. You kind of are. And yet I still love you. But like, do you know all the stuff I've done in the past? I do. I do. I know it all. In fact, I even know more than you know, which is crazy, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and you still bring me so much joy. How is that possible? <laughs> uh, I'm not really even sure. It just is. No, I, I do know. It's because of Jesus. It's because of what he's done. And that's, how we beat, that's how we beat those emotional lies that we experience in our life, by going back and understanding we are loved by Jesus with no strings attached the third thing we got to understand as it relates to how to work in or how to work out our salvation in order to keep letting God in. And here, this, I'm closing right here. This is kind of my last, my last thing. In fact, I was telling Courtney last night, I oftentimes will go over the message with her and just kind of get some feedback from her as like a last minute kind of addition to what we're talking about. And, and I said, babe, I actually wanted to spend the whole message talking about this right here, but I just felt like we were supposed to share a bit more. And I share that with you right now because I want us to understand that there's a real seriousness to understanding what God wants to speak to us in this third point here. That a lot of times we dismiss, and certainly I haven't heard this spoken about much in church settings, at least in my, in my lifetime, but we gotta learn to see the, see the present as a window into the past. And in other words, you gotta understand that looking to the past illuminates why we are the way that we are in the present. But the reason why so many of us don't want to look to the past is because it's painful. And it's the reason why a lot of us don't even like to talk about some of the painful events of our past. 
Furthermore, it's the reason why most of us try to forget them and just keep brushing them under that rug once again because it's just, it's too painful. But we have to understand that emotional health is about reality, not denial or illusion. It's about embracing, check this out, embracing God's choice to birth us into a particular family, in a particular place, at a particular moment in history. That God knew the family that you were going to be birthed into. And he knew the grandparents you were going to have and the great-grandparents that you were going to have. And that choice by God granted to us, catch this ethos, granted to us certain opportunities and gifts. It also handed to us certain amounts of emotional baggage too. I was talking to somebody in between services and she was sharing with me how she, give, she was giving this illustration at one point that I thought was so good that, that, that our birthplace the family that we were birthed into is sort of like a garden. And there's certain things that were rooted in that garden. And as we grow older, we have a choice as to what's going to remain in that garden and what isn't going to remain in that garden. However, we still have to be aware of what's been planted in that, in that garden. Just, just hang with me here for a moment. See, every follower of Jesus must take the time to look at the brokenness in the sin of his or her family. Her immediate family, his immediate family, grandparents, and even great-grandparents. The, the problem, though, is that few of us have reflected honestly on the impact that our family of origins have had on our lives. And even more so, few of us have, have taken the time to actually reflect on how some of the earthquake events that have happened in our life have impacted our present realities. And furthermore, how they've impacted our present relationships. When we do premarital counseling with young couples, we have this unique privilege of getting to talk to so many young couples. One of the things we try to unpack so much of is Let's talk about your family history. Let's talk, about, let's talk about the way in which you saw family modeled in your home. And let's unpack that a bit and talk about some of the benefits that, that are there and some of the challenges that you may face as a result. Because generally speaking, what all of us experience when we step into marriage is kind of the same. Going back to that life cycle, we experience excitement. And at some point, disillusionment. Because we haven't shined a light on the parts of our own lives that we're actually disillusioned about. And all we're aware of is the parts of everybody else's life that have disillusioned us, that are broken, that are full of sin. And as a result, we experience that, that shame. But it is very common to observe patterns of behavior from one generation to the next. Patterns such as divorce or alcoholism, addictive behavior, sexual abuse, poor marriages, one child running off, mistrust of authority, pregnancy out of wedlock, inability to remain rooted in a relationship or, or even jobs. And I was reading a lot going into this series of how so scientists and sociologists have been debating for decades whether that pattern is a result of nature, like our DNA, or nurture, like the environment that we grew up in. And most sociologists have agreed that it's a, it's a result of both, the DNA and and our, and our environments. And what happens in one generation, it often repeats itself in the next. And we see this, here, hear this, we see this all throughout scripture. It's what the Old Testament frequently refers to as generational curses. We're not gonna get into kind of all the theological nuances of a generational curse, but ultimately what it's referring to is a generational pattern 
that we see experienced in our life. In the solution or the antidote that Jesus has for us. And come on, somebody. Jesus always has the antidote. His antidote is to recognize that when you're born again, that when you receive salvation, the way that you work out that salvation in this area of our life is to be birthed into, to recognize that you've been birthed into a new family. It's called the family of God. It's why we are so adamant here at Ethos. We don't just talk about being a family because it sounds neat, it sounds kind of cliche, it sounds kind of friendly and fun or whatever. No, no. We talk about being birthed into a family, the family of God, because it's the way in which Jesus intended for us to experience a new way of living, a new way of being, a new way of understanding what it looks like to break free from some of those patterns of behavior. It's why we have to recognize that health in a church is imperative because otherwise some people will never know what emotional health will ever look like. And as a result, we just keep, again, in the words of John Maxwell, I don't see anything beautifully different in lost people than in saved people. And this is the reason why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, if you love your father or mother more than you love me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you love your, your son or daughter more than me, you're not worthy of being mine. What Jesus is not saying here is that you shouldn't love your father or mother or your son or daughter. No, no, he's saying, look, I want you to look to me, not to your family, not to the patterns of behaviors that they've exhibited for you. I want you to fix your eyes, your attention, and your focus on me. Because, because when I was three years old, my, my parents divorced for about the first six or seven years of, of my marriage. I was terrified. Like, I, I literally, you're probably not going to meet too many more people who are, like, outwardly more confident. And so you would never have known how scared I was on the inside that my wife was going to leave me. I was convinced that if I did anything wrong, like, I just, I was always trying to perform for her. And if I just didn't get it exactly right, I was terrified that she was going to leave me. And eventually, Courtney, like, she started picking up on this. She's like, babe, why are you, like, so insecure constantly being like, are you going to leave me? I would ask her that frequently. I mean, how annoying is that? Like, we just celebrated 15 years of marriage. I'm like, how, you put up with me and a lot of crap for way too long. And, and, and I, I said, man, babe, what, what was that like? And she's like, I don't, I just knew that there was something in you that was unhealthy from your past. And eventually we, we identified, oh, you think the same thing's going to happen to us that happened to you to your family. And eventually, as I began to process that and wrestle with that, I don't have that same, I don't have that same fear anymore. But that was, it was an adopted thing that I didn't even realize was in me that became, became really unhealthy as a result because we often underestimate the deep unconscious imprint of our families of origin and what that leaves on us. And it's usually not until we grow older that we begin to realize the depth of our family's influence. It's why young people, one of the greatest gifts that you can give yourself, and, and as adults, one of the greatest gifts that we can give the next generation is self-awareness, gently helping them to become aware of where some of these patterns of behavior are coming from, gently helping to become aware of how the enemy is continuing to lie to them, gently helping to become aware of some of the emotions that they're feeling and experiencing on the inside of them. We, we just, we gotta recognize, church. You gotta recognize, woo, the reason why so many of our relationships are so unhealthy 
is because we, we don't realize the baggage in one sense that we're bringing into them. We've not allowed God to work out what he's been working in us. And there are lies that are hardwired into our brains, into our DNA, so much so that from the best that I can tell in my short lifetime at this, at this point, so much so that without biblical discipleship and intervention from God, we bring all of these hardwired, unhealthy behaviors into every single relationship that we experience. And so they're exciting to start with, and they become disillusioned over a period of time. So we gotta begin to recognize them. And Peter Scazzaro in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, once again, just another plug for that book. Because I just, I, like my, my prayer is that our church would really, we'd lean into this and really become even more and more healthy. But, but I'm gonna close with this right here. He, he calls these family commandments, like commandments that we've, that we've kind of adopted through our family, but they're, they're negative ways of thinking or negative patterns in our life that we may not even be aware of. This is just a handful of them. I, I knew we wouldn't have time to share all of them, and I'm not going to unpack all of them either, but, but we, have, we have unhealthy ways of thinking about money that we were raised with as well, that money, some of us were taught at a young age, whether unspoken or spoken, it's the best source of security. The more money you have, the more important you are. Make lots of money to prove that you've made it. Conflict, that we, we, we've been taught to avoid conflict at all costs. Like, don't get people mad at you. Like, just always just try to, just keep peace, keep peace, keep peace. Peacekeeper, peacemaker, two very, very, very different things, by the way. Loud, angry, constant fighting, that's normal in a home. I was, we, we were talking with a couple, a couple a few months ago, we were having dinner with them and just walking through some stuff, and, and, and and they, say, and they were talking about how they fight. And the husband said, that's, that's just normal stuff, though. It's not. It's not normal. To accept it as normal is to just keep brushing it under the rug. We've been taught that sex is, is not to be spoken about openly. That sexuality and marriage will, will come easily. The enemy has perverted sex probably more than he's perverted anything, by the way, church. So much so that the conversation has almost been completely stripped from the church. Like, ooh, we, can, oh, you don't, we don't talk about sex. Well, that's weird. But, but like we were made sexual beings by God. And so if we don't talk about it in a redeemed environment, we will learn about it in an unredeemed environment and we'll continue to experience it in the most perverse kind of a way. We're taught that women are an object of pleasure, not partnership. Sadness is a sign of weakness. You're not allowed to be depressed. Get over losses quickly. Come on, just move on. Anger is dangerous and bad. Except Jesus himself modeled what anger, righteous anger looks like. Exploding anger to make, a, to make a really valid point. Sarcasm is an acceptable way to release anger. Don't trust people, they're gonna let you down. Nobody will ever hurt you again. Don't show vulnerability, that's a, sign of, that's a sign of weakness. Only be close friends with people who are like you. Don't marry a person of another race or culture. Certain cultures and races are not as good as mine. Success is getting into the best schools. Success is making lots of money. Success is getting married and having children. Young people buy into this lie all the time. That's why we have a really poor theology about singleness in the church today. You are not allowed to have certain feelings. 
Your feelings are not important. Reacting with your feelings without thinking, that's okay. Just, just do it. These are, these are family commitments. This is just scratching the surface. I mean, there's all sorts about gender roles and things that we bring into relationships as well. I mean, you could name your own, but the point is that, like, have you taken time to recognize, like, man, because of what I experienced in my past, because of the way I was raised, that's, that might be why I do what I do in the present. I don't know, just throwing it out there. I shared this in first service. I'll share it now to you as we, as we close right here. I promise we're closing. That sounds like, not just like the preacher thing, right? Like, you ever been to church before and the preacher's like, closing right here, like 25 minutes later, you're like, you swore you were closing right there. Okay, closing right here. My, my wife and I have the healthiest marriage we've ever had right now on this day because three years ago, we both got serious about our emotional health. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty disciplined by nature. That was inherited in my family. The smucker side of the family is very, very disciplined. So reading my Bible, prayer, kind of the whole gamut of religiosity, that stuff kind of, it kind of comes, kind of comes, I hate to say this because I don't want it, I don't want it to sound wrong, but it, it kind of comes easy. What doesn't come easy is holding a mirror in front of me with a flashlight inside of me. That's just not easy. And about three years ago, we just made the decision. Our relationship, it's, it's okay, like it's good. Like there's nothing overtly bad about it, but like there's more. And so we, we just got serious about pursuing emotional health. And I share that with you because I'm telling you right now, church, best spiritual maturity decision we ever made was to get serious about our emotional health. Because true spirituality frees us to live joyfully in the present, but it requires going back in order to go forward. Last point right here. It really is the last slide. See? Last slide. Pray for courage. How do you work out what God is working in? Pray for courage. It's not about your willpower. It's not about your strength. It's not about your discipline. We gotta understand that all of this is still connected to the grace and the power and the authority that comes only through the Spirit of God. That's it. So pray for courage. Like, like ask God sincerely. Like, like, get, like, like get on your knees. Like, God, I, I wanna be serious about this. Like, I, God, would you give me the courage to work out what you are working in? To look at some of the things from my past that they're painful to bring up, but it's time for me to bring them up. I've been carrying it around for too long. I don't want to carry it forward any longer. Give me the courage, God. Now, I'm telling you, I promise you, that's a God, that's a, that is a God-honoring prayer. He's going to honor that. He's going to lean into that. He's like, oh, son, daughter, I got you. I got you. But becoming emotionally healthy, it's not a it's not, a, it's not a one prayer, it's not a one day journey, not a one week, one month, one year. It's a lifelong journey, church. So give yourself some grace as well as you pursue becoming emotionally healthy. Recognize that the Lord is at work within you even when it feels like you are still continuing to resort to some of those old patterns and behaviors. Surround yourself with some healthy relationships who can speak some of this truth into your life as well because we need each other. We need, we need each other.